Chapter forty three of El Dorado by Baroness Orzee. Read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage in September two thousand and seven. Chapter forty three. The Dreary Journey. Rain, rain, rain. Incessant, monotonous, and dreary. The wind had changed round to the southwest. It blew now in great gusts that sent weird, sighing sounds through the trees, and drove the heavy showers into the faces of the men as they rode on, with heads bent forward against the gale. The rain-sodden bridles slipped through their hands, bringing out sores and blisters on their palms. The horses were fidgety, tossing their heads with wearying persistence as the wet trickled into their ears, or the sharp, intermittent hailstones struck their sensitive noses. Three days of this awful monotony, varied only by the halts at wayside inns, the changing of troops at one of the guard-houses on the way, the reiterated commands given to the fresh squad before starting on the next lap of this strange, momentous way. And all the while, audible above the clatter of horses' hoofs, the rumbling of coach-wheels, two closed carriages, each drawn by a pair of sturdy horses, which were changed at every halt. A soldier on each box urged them to a good pace to keep up with the troopers, who were allowed to go at an easy canter or light jog-trot, whatever might prove easiest and least fatiguing, and from time to time Heron's shaggy, gaunt head would appear at the window of one of the coaches, asking the way, the distance to the next city, or to the nearest wayside inn, cursing the troopers, the coachman, his colleague, and every one concerned, blaspheming against the interminable length of the road, against the cold and against the wet. Early in the evening on the second day of the journey he had met with an accident. The prisoner, who presumably was weak and weary, and not over-steady on his feet, had fallen up against him as they were both about to re-enter the coach after a halt just outside Amiens, and Citizen Heron had lost his footing in the slippery mud of the road. His head came in violent contact with the step, and his right temple was severely cut. Since then he had been forced to wear a bandage across the top of his face, under his sugar-loaf hat which had added nothing to his beauty, but a great deal to the violence of his temper. He wanted to push the men on, to force the pace, to shorten the halts, but Chauvelin knew better than to allow slackness and discontent to follow in the wake of over-fatigue. The soldiers were always well rested and well fed, and though the delay caused by long and frequent halts must have been just as irksome to him as it was to Heron, yet he bore it imperturbably for he would have had no use on this momentous journey for a handful of men whose enthusiasm and spirit had been blown away by the roughness of the gale, or drowned in the fury of the constant downpour of rain. Of all this Marguerite had been conscious in a vague, dreamy kind of way. She seemed to herself like the spectator in a moving panoramic drama, unable to raise a finger, or to do aught to stop that final, inevitable ending, the cataclysm of sorrow and misery that awaited her, when the dreary curtain would fall on the last act, and she and all the other spectators—Armand, Chauvelin, Heron, the soldiers—would slowly wend their way home, leaving the principal actor behind the fallen curtain, which never would be lifted again. After that first halt in the guard-room of the Rue saint she had been bidden to enter a second hackney-coach, which followed the other at a distance of fifty metres or so, and was, like that other, closely surrounded by a squad of mounted men. Armand and Chauvelin rode in this carriage with her. All day she sat, looking out on the endless monotony of the road, on the drops of rain that pattered against the window-glass, and ran down from it like a perpetual stream of tears. There were two halts called during the day, one for dinner, 
and one midway through the afternoon, when she and Armand could step out of the coach and be led, always with soldiers close around them, to some wayside inn, where some sort of a meal was served, where the atmosphere was close and stuffy, and smelt of onion soup and of stale cheese. Armand and Marguerite would, in most cases, have a room to themselves, with sentinels posted outside the door, and they would try and eat enough to keep body and soul together, for they would not allow their strength to fall away before the end of the journey was reached. For the night halt, once at Beauvais, and the second night at Abbeville, they were escorted to a house in the interior of the city, where they were accommodated with moderately clean lodgings. Sentinels, however, were always at their doors. They were prisoners in all but name, and had little or no privacy, for at night they were both so tired that they were glad to retire immediately, and to lie down on the hard beds that had been provided for them, even if sleep fled from their eyes, and their hearts and souls were flying through the city in search of him who filled their every thought. Of Percy they saw little or nothing. In the daytime food was evidently brought to him in the carriage, for they did not see him get down, and on those two nights at Beauvais and Abbeville, when they caught sight of him stepping out of the coach outside the gates of the barracks, he was so surrounded by soldiers, that they only saw the top of his head, and his broad shoulders towering above those of the men. Once Marguerite had put all her pride, all her dignity by, and asked Citizen Chauvelin for news of her husband. "'He is well and cheerful, Lady Blakeney,' he had replied, with his sarcastic smile. "'Ah!' he added pleasantly, "'those English are remarkable people. We of Gallic breed will never really understand them. Their fatalism is quite oriental in its quiet resignation to the decree of fate. Did you know, Lady Blakeney, that when Sir Percy was arrested he did not raise a hand? I thought, and so did my colleague, that he would have fought like a lion. And now that he has no doubt realised that quiet submission will serve him best in the end, he is as calm on this journey as I am myself. In fact, he concluded complacently. Whenever I have succeeded in peeping into the coach, I have invariably found Sir Percy Blakeney fast asleep. He—she murmured, for it was so difficult to speak to this callous wretch, who was obviously mocking her in her misery—he—you—you you are not keeping him in irons?' "'No, oh, no,' replied Chauvelin, with perfect urbanity. "'You see, now that we have you, Lady Blakeney, and Citizen Saint-Just with us, we have no reason to fear that that elusive Pimpernel will spirit himself away.' A hot retort had risen to Armand's lips. The warm Latin blood in him rebelled against this intolerable situation, the man's sneers in the face of Marguerite's anguish. But her restraining, gentle hand had already pressed his. What was the use of protesting? of insulting this brute who cared nothing for the misery which he had caused so long as he had gained his own ends. And Armand held his tongue, and tried to curb his temper, tried to cultivate a little of that fatalism which Chauvelin had said was characteristic of the English. He sat beside his sister, longing to comfort her, yet feeling that his very presence near her was an outrage, a sacrilege. She spoke so seldom to him, even when they were alone, that at times the awful thought which had more than once found birth in his weary brain became crystallised and more real. Did Marguerite guess? Had she the slightest suspicion that the awful cataclysm to which they were tending, with every revolution of the creaking coach-wheels, had been brought about by her brother's treacherous hand? And when that thought had lodged itself quite snugly in his mind, he began to wonder whether it would not be far more simple, far more easy, to end his miserable life in some manner that might suggest itself on the way. When the coach crossed one of those dilapidated parapetless bridges, over abysses fifty metres deep, 
it might be so easy to throw open the carriage door and to take one final jump into eternity. So easy, but so damnably cowardly. Marguerite's near presence quickly brought him back to himself. His life was no longer his own to do with as he pleased. It belonged to the chief whom he had betrayed, to the sister whom he must endeavour to protect. Of Jeanne now he thought but little. He had put even the memory of her by tenderly, like a sprig of lavender pressed between the faded leaves of his own happiness. His hand was no longer fit to hold that of any pure woman. His hand had on it a deep stain, immutable like the brand of Cain. Yet Marguerite beside him held his hand, and together they looked out on that dreary, dreary road, and listened to the patter of the rain and the rumbling of the wheels of that other coach on ahead. And it was all so dismal and so horrible—the rain, the soughing of the wind in the stunted trees, this landscape of mud and desolation, this eternally grey sky. End of chapter 43